0: Podcast
1: One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, it's our last MI3 podcast for 2020, and we're going up with a really big one. Probably not one you want before we take a break from one hell of a year, but it's central to everything the marketing, media, tech, and agency worlds do. Consumer data and privacy. In October just gone, the federal government released an issues paper on a review of the Privacy Act. It's quite potentially very disruptive for everyone because the scope of this review covers everything from the definition of personal information, which could suddenly lock up device IDs, IP addresses, and geolocation data, to consent and notification requirements to users. If you have anything to do with media, personalization, customer experience, targeting, segmentation, or first-party data, your number is up. And in my view, a significant reason we're seeing a push on the privacy from regulators is because the marketing industry has not given enough focus for a long time and enough sensitivity to consumer privacy. We've gone headlong into exploiting the data and consumer surveillance economy, and it's now catching up to us. But that's only my view. Today's podcast is a little different. We teamed up with the IAB on this one in a forum it put on around privacy with three privacy specialists and their views on what the Privacy Act review could mean for the marketing and media sectors. Each of them give a 10-minute privacy nirvana and privacy hell scenario, and then we go into a Q&A session on some important could-be implications for the industry. You need to stay with this one, so let's get on with it. It's In this session, we'll hear from a former New South Wales Deputy Privacy Commissioner, Anna Johnston from Salinger Privacy, Peter Leonard, an academic and principal of Data Synergies, and Anna Milicevic from US-based Sparrow Advisors for an international perspective. Buckle up, this one is loaded. Here we go. Enjoy the last MI3 podcast for the year and we'll see you in 2021.
0: Well, good morning everyone. And um, thank you again JJ in particular for inviting me to join your end of year wrap up webinar and a bit of crystal ball gazing, hopefully. So in order to prepare for this privacy Nirvana or privacy hell topic, I started by Googling Nirvana, which gave me Smells Like Teen Spirit, which, if you are too young and hip to know this, was a grunge rock song named after a brand of deodorant, which seems kind of appropriate for a discussion about marketing. So that was Nirvana. Then I looked up Hell, which led me to Dante's Nine Circles of Hell. Now... Having only been vaguely aware of what Dante was about, since he was not quite as popular as Nirvana was in my day, I checked him out to discover that in Dante's imagining, each circle of hell is assigned to a different type of sinner who then suffers their own brand of punishments. So hell progresses from the unbaptized and the pagans who are nonetheless virtuous, via gluttons and adulterers to murderers and then traitors, I can only assume that lawyers and advertising executives are allocated somewhere in the middle there. So this got me to thinking, how does God know who should go into which circle of hell? Obviously the big man upstairs has some pretty serious surveillance and data analytics capabilities if he can segment his audience this well. And then that got me to thinking about the other big guy who knows something about surveillance and the delivery of personalized messaging. After all, they say, he knows if you've been sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, depending on whether you've been bad or good this year, you might receive a good privacy act or a bad privacy act next year. So I wanted to tell you what I believe a pro-privacy Privacy Act might look like, but then I'm going to leave it up to you to decide if that's your idea of privacy nirvana or your idea of privacy hell. So one of the themes running through this latest review of the Privacy Act is the need to ensure that Australia's privacy laws empower consumers to protect their data while also allowing businesses to engage with consumers online. Of particular concern is the need to ensure that the Australian Privacy Act is brought into closer alignment with Europe's law, the GDPR, so that Australia could possibly, finally, secure an adequacy decision from the European Commission. And now this would open up more possibilities for trade in personal information, because if we had what's known as an adequacy ruling, then personal information could be transferred from Europe to Australia more easily. Now, to date, that adequacy ruling has escaped Australia. They have asked but not received in the past, primarily because of a number of carve-outs from the Act's coverage of the private sector, including exemptions for small business, employee records, political parties and media organisations. So first on my Christmas wish list is for all of those exemptions to be scrapped to really expand out the material scope of the organisations regulated by the Privacy Act in the first place, so that we in Australia could have a world-class privacy law. Now, given where this review started with the AC's digital platforms inquiry, we should also expect the government to focus very much on targeted advertising, personalised content, and the role of online identifiers in particular in facilitating the digital advertising ecosystem. But at the moment, it's not always clear whether cookies or other online identifiers or the information shared within the ad tech industry is even considered personal information as defined and as regulated by the Privacy Act. So next on my wish list is to rethink the scope of the act by expanding out that definition of personal information. So the definition of personal information in Australian law is a threshold issue, or in fact, in all privacy and data protection laws. If something doesn't meet the definition of personal information or personal data, um, depending which law you're talking about, then it's simply not regulated at all. So through the current definition in Australia, the Privacy Act regulates conduct only when a person is identifiable or reasonably identifiable. However, in my view, privacy harms can also arise from what I call individuation which is the ability to single out a person from the crowd so that they can be tracked or profiled or contacted or located and then subject to some kind of action or decision that impacts them, even if the individual's identity is not known. Now, this poses a really fundamental challenge to current privacy legal frameworks. If you think about it from the digital breadcrumbs we shared from our mobile phones, to the patterns of behaviour we exhibit online when we browse, click, comment, share, like, we can be tracked. And from there we can be profiled and finally targeted all without the party doing the tracking, profiling or targeting, needing to know precisely who we are in a legal sense. We are just a collection of attributes. In my view, the digital environment has turned on its head the assumption that identifiability in the sense of knowing a person's identity in a legal sense is the only way in which someone can suffer a privacy harm. I would argue that individuation can potentially lead to privacy harms and therefore must be anticipated by more modern privacy laws as well. So a rethink of the threshold definition of personal information in order to explicitly include online identifiers and technical data such as metadata And a new definition which um, encompasses the idea of individuation as well as identifiability could lead to really significant improvements in the quality of privacy protections for Australians. Now, that might seem like a really radical change, but it would actually be in keeping with global trends. Newer laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act have already moved in this direction, Under the CCPA, information that simply links to a consumer via a device is within scope for its definition of personal information. The full identification of the consumer is not necessary. And given the CCPA's introduction of do not sell buttons and the European Parliament and European privacy regulators moving on ad tech, and Google's Chrome browser phasing out third-party cookies by 2022, and Apple's operating system being updated to implement opt-in only for tracking users across different apps and websites. Well, there's already plenty happening to nudge the online behavioural advertising industry towards a more privacy-protective opt-in model. So in my view, strengthening the Australian Privacy Act's definition of personal information would be in line with achieving those same objectives but in a technology-neutral and industry-neutral way. Another pet topic of mine is the role of transparency, such as notice and consent. Now, while I am all for more transparency, it is only effective as a form of privacy protection if it's meaningful. And much of the time, let's face it, we don't really have a choice in what is happening with our data. And in those cases where we do have a choice, most of the time we don't have the time or energy or the bargaining power or the understanding of the nature of the risks in front of us to make properly informed decisions. So another possible reform on my wish list is a reduction in the Privacy Act's reliance on the transparency model of privacy regulation, instead, moving towards stricter limits on collection, use, and disclosure. The issues paper for the review of the act canvasses alternative models, such as GDPR-type overarching fairness tests. And the Canadian idea of no-go zones for certain types of data flows. The Australian privacy regulator, the OAIC, has already expressed its preference for something like an overarching fairness test. What might that mean for the advertising industry in particular? Quite possibly some of the more intrusive methods of profiling customers would be off the table, as well as advertising or personalised messaging which could lead to obvious harms. So I'm thinking here about practices, for example, which target vulnerable individuals such as people with a mental illness or a gambling addiction. Another area that might be considered under a broad banner of fairness could relate to children. In its report on customer loyalty schemes, the ACCC noted that multiple submissions requested that children should not be tracked, profiled, subject to marketing or monetised. And finally, I would love to see an increased penalties for breaches, a statutory tort for serious invasions of privacy, and reforms to deliver improved access to justice. This could include a direct right of action for individuals with a complaint about a breach of a privacy principle. At the moment, complainants can only go to the privacy regulator, the OAIC, whose backlog of complaints creates delays and can operate as a barrier to resolution of complaints. Whereas the ability to take a complaint to a tribunal or court with the power to order compensation, as happens already under New South Wales and Victorian state privacy laws, well, that could see a meaningful improvement in access to justice for those people keen to have their day in court. I also believe a direct right of action could make companies and government agencies more mindful about protecting privacy in the first place. So that's my vision of what a more privacy protective version of the Privacy Act could look like, which is certainly what I would like to see in my Christmas stocking this year. But as I said before, I will leave it to you to decide whether my vision of good privacy law is your idea of Nirvana or hell. If you would like to know more about some of these law reform proposals, the Salenter Privacy submission to the Act Review is published on our website, along with our regular blogs that delve into many of these topics in more detail. I would like to thank you for your attention. And now I will hand you back over or hand over rather to Peter Leonard for his view.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm intending not to use slides this morning um, because I'm still on my anti-PowerPoint campaign. Um, And um, what I'd like to do is just pick up a few of Anna's points and really focus in on where Anna and I differ and where we agree. And it's fair to say that um, I do have important differences in views to what Anna has said although I probably agree with 75% of what she had to say. The key points of difference I think between us are in the vision of how to get to Nirvana and indeed um, because of our different view of how to get there um, I think we probably um, are defining a hell in itself. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I think my vision of hell in privacy reform is doubling down on notice and consent in the way that the AC's digital platforms inquiry uh, report invites us and now the Attorney-General's department to do. And that is really cranking up the requirements around express consent and broadening out the definition of personal information to include, amongst other things, online tracking code, even in circumstances where online tracking code is handled in accordance with good privacy practices. And I think that if we go down that road we are simply continuing the fiction that users should be expected to self-manage their privacy sector settings through reading privacy notices and or deciding whether or not to give consents. That has a number of problems, one being that much data now is collected in our surveillance uh, society in circumstances where users are not even aware that data about them is being collected, or simply where it is unreasonable to expect that they should have understanding and exercise responsibility for what information they hand over and what they don't. Now I'm not saying that notice and consent should go out the window. I'm saying that notice and consent should be reserved for those situations where it really is the appropriate tool to govern how and when personal information is being collected and used. I think that we can take some of the best elements of GDPR as, for example, the Canadians have done in their recent bill And as we can see in the latest variant of Californian regulation, the CPRA, I think it's called, um, which was just um, uh, passed in principle um, as part of the uh, presidential and congressional elections in the US, we can take some of those best elements and build them into our regime and roll back and control notice and consent requirements for when notice and consent is really appropriate. Now I'm not advocating a free-for-all in online behavioural advertising or targeting or profiling of users, indeed just the opposite. I am uh, endorsing the suggestion that Animate and the Privacy Commissioner has made around adoption of a fairness or reasonableness standards such as the Canadians have done and are proposing to do again in their new legislation. I think we should have no-go zones around uh, for example targeting of children such as the Indian um, legislature is proposing in its draft uh, data protection bill. Uh, I think that we should Strengthen the legitimate interests or reasonable business interests exceptions so that we uh, actually can ensure that notice is not required of things that people would look at and say, Well, of course, somebody's going to use it for those purposes. I don't need to know that. I don't need to consent to that. And please don't bury me in notices that I don't need to read. In order for me to not be able to find the bits that I really do need to read. So in other words I think there is a role for legitimate uh, interests or a reasonable business purposes exception. It's got to be appropriately controlled and directed. Singapore has recently spent quite some time working through what appropriate controls might look like. The new Californian bill that I mentioned before the CPRA Uh, does the same. So we have good precedence in that space to look at and to adapt into our legislation. Let me be very clear though that uh, I do not believe that we should be significantly extending the definition of personal information to include online identifiers. And again, by saying that, I am not suggesting that there should be a free-for-all around use of online identifiers. To the contrary, I think that where an entity is enabling other entities to use online identifiers, the entity that is enabling that should be responsible for what goes on in that data ecosystem, um, simply because they enable others to do things even if they elect not to do them themselves. So I think to be frank, we need to clean up the advertising data ecosystem and the industry won't have credibility to say to the regulators um, that we can regulate uh, an advertising data ecosystem unless industry accepts that good governance is an essential attribute of privacy uh, compliance. So I do think that our new legislation needs to recognize the difference between pseudonymization and properly controlled data governance for analytics purposes, including for audience segmentation, and to draw a clear distinction between audience segmentation and unacceptable individual level level profiling and I think that's a very important distinction that we need to help the regulators understand. So I don't agree with Anna for example that all profiling which would include audience segmentation should be effectively regulated as a use of personal information. So look there are some points of difference in our views, we agree with each other much more than we disagree with each other and I hope that we can continue this very useful debate and uh, with that um, my time has expired so I'll very happily hand over to Anna.
3: Thank you Peter. I am going to flip us back to PowerPoint world and uh, talk you through uh, a couple of Really mainly nightmare scenarios that are stemming from my local market here in the U.S., kind of things uh, that you shouldn't follow at all if you can. Uh, And then uh, shifting into a much more positive situation on what an ideal uh, type of um, uh, privacy regulation could look like. Uh, So This is me. Um, I've spent the better part of uh, the past two decades in uh, different facets of uh, high-tech management. Um, For the better part of the last decade, I was very deep on digital data. I was the head of product for the company that Adobe bought to 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 start creating their marketing suite. Um, I've also worked on the analytics side of data, identity side of data, and over the course of the past five years have advised brands, technology companies, and uh, uh, publishers and content creators on how to put all of this together in a meaningful way for consumers. You'll often see me speaking for um, media outlets, both trade and um, more, more mainstream. Uh, so I look at this... A challenge around privacy, really from the lens of market dominance first. And I know we talk a lot about how large the US market is, but I want to give you a really strong visual of exactly how large or rather how much larger it is than other markets here. So if we look at just 2019 um, projected spending in 2020, obviously treat that with an asterisk because of the pandemic. But we are talking about uh, the US market that really dwarfs subsequent markets where we're somewhere in the 305 billion Australian dollars range in in, uh, total media ad spending. The second market following us, uh, China, is less than half. And then you need to roll up six and a half subsequent markets to get to parity with the US. If you plonked the entire EU, it would fall somewhere just short of China's uh, number two slot. So it would be ranked number three. And that all depends on whose numbers you look at, because sometimes the EU includes just EU states and sometimes includes EU plus a few uh, I wanted to sketch out the kind of different uh, privacy frameworks that we've seen emerge in, in different countries. So, on the one hand side of uh, privacy permissiveness, let's say, it's the, compre- the comprehensive regulatory framework that you're seeing represented in legislation like GDPR in the EU. On the absolute opposite of this spectrum is the US approach, which is minimal and very sector-specific regulation. So I, I think um, both um, uh, both of my predecessors have mentioned uh, things like restricting access and, and how debt is collected from children. So we do have a law like that called the COPPA, and uh, it doesn't really go far enough. Um, then... China, as the you know, another ginormous market here, had initially implemented a very similar approach to the US one with very minimal again sector specific, sometimes protocol specific regulation. Uh, but they are starting to revisit that approach as of late and are moving towards a much more uh, comprehensive regulatory framework that is coming not, not quite as detailed as GDPR, but it's definitely moving in that direction as opposed to the rather laissez-faire approach that we see in the US. Uh, I've, I've put Australia closer to the comprehensive regulatory framework, uh, very m- much more similar, similar to um, GDPR uh, than what we have on the other side of the spectrum in the US. So you're somewhere here. And uh, if we looked at what a terrible hell scenario in, in privacy looks like, you can already tell that I'm going to talk a lot about the US market here, because I, I do think that we've we've flubbed this, even though we have outsized responsibility to nail it uh, and and really implement it well, because the not only is our market very large, a lot of the companies that we're Uh, everyone across the world is working on come from the U.S. or are headquartered in the U.S. So really the the main caveat is that what works for the U.S. market doesn't necessarily work for other markets. And uh, that is sometimes harder to see when you're in a non-U.S. market just because we're so ginormous. We're the largest global consumer market. We have about 328 million people now, represent about 25% of the entire world's household consumption, and just have a silly levels of GDP in the trillions, which to me will never not be a, a, an incredibly silly number. So what's happening in our market is, is uh, stratification and solidification in the top end between very uh, large platforms like Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who between the three of them are commanding 68% of the overall digital ad revenue share in the past year. And uh, as, as you can this this as you can see from the slide this has only gotten more and more concentrated year over year so there's a uh, there's the top 3 And then there's a huge gap, and then it's kind of everybody else. So we're effectively fighting this battle between the walled gardens and the open internet that we used to enjoy in the past. And I think that's something that's definitely playing out in the Australian market right now too. So we have two competing challenges that both touch on privacy. One is this big tech is too big... Um, argument that uh, has been uh, going around in favour of regulation. And it really uh, boils down to we've gotten uh, these these, uh, large platforms to be so dominant that we should now apply some type of regulatory activity to make them less dominant, But we haven't quite figured out what that should look like. We've had the first antitrust uh, lawsuit filed just recently. We're expecting more uh, similar lawsuits filed imminently. And we're still not sure which way the new administration is going to go. But the DOJ, the Department of Justice, has given indication that they are ready to file several subsequent lawsuits any day now. This is exacerbated by the fact that we have no federal-level data protection at all, uh, not n- never mind digital data-related, but no personal data-related, really. We've had some attempts around specific data sets, like I mentioned, COPA, that, that are, uh, addresses kids. There are some vertical-specific ones, for example, around what... Government agencies can do, like the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Post Office, uh, with uh, a personal-level data, but really not not much beyond uh, something bad has happened. Let's quickly do a law to fix that specific problem. And as you know, with the type of data sets that we're seeing today, and the types of Uh, technology that enables joining of very disparate data sets to create pseudo identities or or, uh, actual identities. Not having that type of foundation is a bit like building a house without a foundation. So not the best scenario. And we're now starting to see states uh, take individual action. California through the CCPA, now two versions of it, has taken the first step. Uh, California is a very large state. If it were not part of the U.S., it would be the world, world's fifth largest economy, represents about 440 million people. And so this is a, a very significant step that they've taken in moving towards that comprehensive regulatory framework. So this is good and bad. Uh, The uh, existence of state level versus federal level at the US level uh, legislation risks effectively fracturing the, the single consumer market that we've created. Uh, so imagine if instead of working with just the u s you would have to work with fifty individual little states and they all had slightly different approaches to privacy and and this would be my uh, the utmost nightmare scenario I think for everybody involved in the industry just the level of uh, effort required for compliance would likely make a lot of collaboration pretty moot and uh, and really non, 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 a non-starter. So now that I've scared you, uh, let's talk about what this could look like on the positive side and what uh, nirvana could look like in, in this scenario. So the the GDPR, the California – sorry, the the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, has three pillars that it it revolves around. uh, It's transparency, control, and accountability. And I like this uh, a lot as a basis for a lot of uh, extended frameworks – Uh, On the transparency side, you may have seen this from the IAB, uh, whose whose tech lab has proposed this uh, data transparency label, which is very similar to the the food labels that you would see on food, that... uh, lists basic information around where a certain data point was sourced, which audience segments it's describing, the, the, you know, the who, what, how and where are behind uh, a particular data set that you're seeing. I think efforts like this can really improve uh, data literacy on the consumer side pretty significantly, but really also on the ad buyer side and across the, the entire ecosystem. On the uh, second pillar, you've seen Apple take a very active stance on declaring privacy as a fundamental right, which is a very interesting approach to, uh, to, uh, outside of the realm of, of any legislation, really positioning yourselves as the good company when it comes to privacy in front of consumers. And essentially solving the privacy challenge in a consumer-friendly way. And then I think the the most important pillar of this is really the enforcement side of it. We're starting to see first uh, attempts at enforcing legislation, not in the U.S. just yet. This is uh, GDPR enforcement. Uh, against large platforms that uh, you know two years after GDPR took, um, uh, came into effect is, is starting to pop up. And I see this as really the st- uh, stick that needs to exist so that people would take privacy seriously. And I'll end on on that note. We talk about privacy a lot, but in the consumer mind and in our collective minds, unless you're a, a privacy uh, specialist, It seems like it's something fluffy and optional. And instead, I would like us to shift this conversation to away from privacy and more towards data usage rights and creating an environment in which consumers can specify what are the types of uh, exchanges of data where they will find value as opposed to just platforms or data aggregators or some third party uh, achieving all of the commercial advantages of transacting with data with consumers really having no say in how their data is packaged, used, or activated. So that's my uh, uh, nirvana scenario without really sketching in too much detail what it's going to look like. I imagine it as some platform where you can designate what are you, what you're interested in receiving and seeing. But uh, I think we'll have to wait for the next couple of years to uh, have this materialize as consumer um, awareness around privacy and data rights increases, whether through actions like Apple's or through uh, reactions to large data breaches like uh, I think every country has experienced lately. All right, so on that note, Paul.
1: Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Peter. We're going to try and get through four key themes. Consumer attitudes towards privacy. It's a, it's, In my mind, it's quite messy and trying to understand what they really uh, think. We have different surveys, different studies saying different things. We'll get to that. The democratisation of data, with this, all the panellists have kind of touched on that a bit. How does industry prepare and adapt? And we'll get some, some thoughts from the panellists on that. And then the curveball for the three of you is what's your hunch and how this may play out in terms of the Privacy Act here? So what, what you... C needs to happen, but how do you think the government uh, will actually um, go? And that's a crystal ball. We won't hold you to it, but it's a nice speculative piece. But to the first bit, I just want to, as a bit of a setup around genuinely how the public, how the individuals feel about privacy and tracking, I want to get your sense on it. The ACCC's Rod Sims... Uh, on the Google uh, uh, case that it's brought in the federal court uh, on breaches to online tracking and privacy and deceptive mechanics to get user consent, and although you, you might be aware of that happened in mid-year, um, but in that in that briefing, there's a media briefing that I was at with Sims. And uh, he said this, he said, "'During the Digital Platforms Inquiry, "'we found in our surveys that over 80% of people "'did not want their browsing and web-crawling activity "'and the data generated from that "'to be combined with their personally identifiable information "'so they could be profiled on the web "'or be the target of targeted ads.'" Our view, says Sims, is that had they been given a real choice, had they not been deceived, many of them would not have clicked, I agree. Some internationally use the term that this is an agreement for deception. Now, there's Sims and, and, and the ACCC with its studies on on, on, on public uh, perceptions and, and sentiment towards privacy. You see others where it says, it's OK, I'm there's a benefit. If I'm targeted, it's OK, I've got a benefit, you know, um, that there's something relevant to me. And so I want to just get the sense from all of you... First on where you think this this sort of disparity sits, um, this dichotomy between uh, different studies on, on consumer perceptions towards privacy. Anna, I might start with you, given that you um, you had something to do with privacy in a, in a past life, just a little thing. Um, what's your sense on on the public sentiment?
0: So I actually don't see those two positions as opposed. If you've got most people saying, well, you know, I I want to better understand or or what Sim's saying, people should better understand what it is they're agreeing to before they click, I agree, and they should be given more options. And then you've got some people saying, well, you know, I'm fine with targeted advertising, then that's great, as long as we're all given that option and the people who are happy about the, you know, to have their data linked and be profiled and, and have targeted advertising, then they get to say yes and the rest of us get to say no. And I don't think that those, therefore, those two positions are actually in opposition, they're just expressing, you know, coming at it from the same kind of angle. But I think that case and and other cases kind of illustrate the problem, which is that most of us, most people don't really understand exactly what's happening or what they're being asked to agree to, may feel like they have no choice but to say, I agree, in order to get access to the kind of digital service or the platform that they're after. And it's extremely hard for anyone to understand, even privacy experts, to necessarily understand what the potential risks are going to be because it's so obtuse. The risks, you know, there's a time-shifting aspect to this. I'll get the benefits now, um, and the risks may or may not play out in the future, and they're going to, the risks will not be transparent to me. I won't know that I've seen a particular ad or not seen a particular ad or seen something in my news feed or been excluded from seeing something in my news feed because of, you know, my web browsing history or whatever it is, it won't be apparent to me exactly what's going on. So that's, um, that's partly why it makes it extremely difficult for anyone to make informed choices. So I think we should be given the choice, but at the same time I don't think that being given more transparency and control is in itself the solution. I think there still needs to be something like the overarching fairness framework to regulate, you know, there should should be, whether it's no-go zones or whatever, some concept of activities, certain activities just should not be allowed in the first place. Um, And we as consumers shouldn't be put in the position of having to agree to them or being asked to agree to certain practices
1: okay so Peter two things there do you see attention do you, is there a tension to be reconciled between public views on not wanting to be tracked and others saying that it's okay there's that part of it but also what, what Anna's talked about I think you talked about the onus on this collection and consent and transparency you think the onus should be on the data holder not the user to sort of govern uh, what happens with the data there's two parts of the question there Peter but the first one on on public perceptions on privacy first and and tracking do you do you buy Sims's line on the 80% don't want it
2: at one level, my answer is simple, I don't care what consumers think. And that's a very glib answer, but let me explain why I say it. There are two very separate fields here which keep getting confused. One is consumer protection, as um, administered by the AC, and consumers are entitled not to be misled and consumers are entitled um, not to be the subject of unfair contract terms. Then there is separately the issue of data privacy. And the reason the distinction is important is that increasingly data is being collected in circumstances where I'm not a consumer. Um, I may be walking down the street and there's facial recognition cameras I may be observed by an IOT device, Uh, I may be the subject of online tracking in circumstances where nobody knows who I am. And in all of those circumstances, data privacy law does have a role to play and to ensure that there is good and fair data governance. But let's not try and follow the mad hatter I think it was who went down the rabbit hole or was it Alice anyway whoever it was that went down that rabbit hole um, of notice and consent as the way to fix all of this because all we're going to do is to create a hell of um, organizations papering their way to compliance as Anna said we do need to have a basic standard of fairness and reasonableness that applies to what organizations do and what they allow other organisations to do. And let me just quote one section from the Canadian bill um, that was tabled three weeks ago. Um, Three lines. An organisation may collect, use or disclose personal information only for purposes that a reasonable person would consider appropriate in the circumstances. And then it goes on to list factors to consider in determining What's appropriate in the circumstances? Then the, they include the sensitivity of the personal information, whether the purposes represent legitimate business needs of the organisation, um, whether there are less intrusive means of achieving those purposes at comparable cost and with comparable benefits, and whether the individual's loss of privacy is proportionate to the benefits in light of any measures, technical or otherwise, implemented by the organisation to mitigate the impact of the loss of privacy on the individual. Now, that's, you know, what is it, 20 lines in total. And if we included those 20 lines in our Act, we could fundamentally change how organisations think about privacy and we start to get the appropriate balance between organisations demonstrating accountability and users, consumers somehow being expected to self-manage what other organisations are doing, collecting information in ways that they simply can't understand that we can't explain to them in terms that they will understand and that often we don't understand
1: ourselves. Right, and does Peter have a point there about the onus on consent and understand the user, the consumer, understanding just the complexity of what they need to be across to make an informed decision on consent and therefore his point around the governance responsibility going to an organisation rather than on the user. What What do you make of that argument?
0: Oh, look, I'm in complete agreement, which doesn't make for a very interesting webinar.
3: I, I have a, a slightly different wrench to throw in there, and that's that... We've done a really bad job as an industry describing the value trade-off to consumers. So all we're doing is asking them to say yes to if they want to set cookies. And unless you know what a cookie is and what a cookie looks like, how are you going to process that? And how are you going to understand that something that you do today can potentially... Five years down the road, be used by a completely different company you've never interacted with because somebody has sold your data on on you know through several transactions, and and that's where I think we're we're failing failing as advertisers to highlight all of the cool things that we could be delivering in exchange for some uh, privacy considerations, but really failing consumers altogether in a consumer data literacy and a consumer data rights usage, again, perspective. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. You could have the best possible legislative framework, but if you don't make it understandable for consumers in a way that Apple for example is doing now by saying that you know privacy is a human right and similar very emotionally inducing uh, language that I don't think we're going to be quite very successful as an industry so for me it's less about that I think it's clear and I agree that you know the onus here really should be on companies rather than individuals but at some point we need to find a way to articulate the value to consumers of this data exchange. And maybe maybe that's the maybe that's the reasonable person uh, clause from the from the Canadian uh, legislation.
2: Can I just pick up one other point there, Paul? Because I think we should make it before we go and that is um, we've mentioned consumer protection, we've mentioned data privacy, but this debate is not only about those two things, it's also about market structure because if we get these settings wrong, one hell that we might create is inability for independent players in the advertising sector to be able to create, create uh, audience segments and market outside the digital giants. And we do run a real risk that if we get these settings wrong, we are going to promote further concentration in the market in favour of a few global digital players. And I'm not suggesting that um, that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying well, I shall. if we I get shall. the settings wrong, that's where we will end up. But that,
3: that's what we're seeing in the US with the, the stratification yeah. where, you know the top 25 uh, largest companies, and really it's the top three, then a big gap, then the rest of, of uh, the 20-something.
1: Right, and it does get us, Anna, it does get us to this next point, which I'm conscious of time, uh, the democratisation of data. Now, I did a really interesting podcast with one of your colleagues in the US actually, an Australian expat, Joshua Locock from uh, UM, Global Brand Safety Officer at IPG Media Brands. He says two things. We, if we don't regulate on data and companies and how data uh, and how the the access and scale of data then if you don't regulate we'll all be working for Facebook or Google in 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 a time frame because that's he was not even being um, glib about it or try it he was serious that that the way the directions going at the moment the way that the, the 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 power sits with you know Google Facebook Amazon as we've mentioned before so he says regulators must be very cautious about privacy legislation that just strengthens the power of the incumbents and doesn't open up the dynamics of the marketplace, which is what you're saying, Peter. And he argues that GDPR's gone that way. That's sort of been the default or the byproduct of GDPR as it actually is consolidated uh, power in, in and around data to those big walled gardens. How do we avoid that here? Or what do we got to watch out for? And, you know, a little bit of contention. Uh, Anna, first, um, if we don't do something right um, in around data democratization in, in business, in a business context, will you and I be working for Facebook and Google or Amazon?
0: I certainly think one of the flaws in the European model of regulation is um, it's the combination of GDPR and the e-privacy directive, because um, it's the e-privacy directive that actually says Something about cookies, you know. I don't think all the cookie banners and the cookie notices and all the rest have done consumers really any good. I don't think that that's a good model. And in focusing too much on cookies, it doesn't really. It's just focusing on the the methodology instead of the underlying nature of what data should be allowed to be collected and used and disclosed and what what shouldn't. So I do think that the solution is not um, uh, either too much focus on a particular technology like the phasing out of cookies or too much on a particular industry like ad tech. I think one of the strengths of the Australian approach is an industry-neutral, technology-neutral set of regulations that comes back to what is fair and what is reasonable as opposed to, you know, particular rules about cookies and walled gardens and, and all the rest. Um, because, you know, something like um, Google phasing out third-party cookies on Chrome, while at face value it might look privacy protective, it's also going to protect Google and Facebook <laughs> that already, already have their walled gardens and, you know, already suck up so much data that they don't need Cookies anymore to do it?
1: Well, they don't need it because they've got logged-in ID data. They've got first-party data that's consent consent uh, compliant. Uh, Peter, your take on that?
2: I agree. Um, and the uh, just to sort of focus in on the risk, if you make it, if you continue to build around the concept of notice and consent, almost by definition, you advantage vertically and horizontally integrated entities that can be one-stop shops. Um, in obtaining notices and consents. And that can confer unfair advantage on those entities as compared to disaggregated entities. And given that we live in a satellite economy, not California, not the USA, we need to be very careful how we regulate because if we regulate to Um, facilitate concentration and centralization of control of data, it will almost invariably be against Australia's interests.
1: I'm going to wrap two questions up for all three of you. The first thing is, what's your hunch on how the privacy changes in this market, in the Australian market, will play out? If you're going to, if you're going to be a betting person, which way would you go on, on on how where it's going to go, the direction? And as a result of that, how does the industry, how does this industry prepare and adapt for what could be coming? Because there's potentially systemic change going to happen here. That's the that's sort of my setup question. So to you, Peter, first.
2: Well, I think the ad tech sector is the outside runner in a handicap race where the ad tech industry has partly been responsible for its own handicapping and the horse that is um, way out in front because it started at least last July is the C in its vision of what um, new privacy laws in Australia should look like, and, uh, and, uh, and unless the um, the advertising services sector gets some bloody good jockeys and gets itself back in the race, the outcome will be whatever the ACCC tells the Attorney General they think the outcome should
1: be great point and to your point you know I would I would agree that the 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 advertising industry at large has been too self-serving and too short-term self-interest uh, for too long and now it's there's a bit of karma coming And so this is why you know let's get let's get some 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 broader perspective on things okay Anna your take and I know it's down under and you're a long way away but what's your sense what's your sense
3: I I agree with Anna I think that's exactly what we can see from uh, from the regulatory body what I worry about is Um, And Peter, you mentioned this um, just recently that, you know, if you're a a satellite market or a smaller market, um, there's only so much you can do with local uh, legislation, especially if you are expecting to have platforms play in your market too. So uh, any type of regulatory activity really needs to be balanced with the understanding of uh, what the platforms will do to counter. And really what you're potentially sacrificing, which may mean that, you know, smaller, more innovative ad tech, martech companies and data companies will simply skip uh, the Australian market and opt for other markets if they perceive the legislative environment to be too restrictive. That's something that we've seen with uh, GDPR when it first came into play, but it actually spewed a... a wave of innovation, endemic innovation from European companies that had kind of privacy built in, as as opposed to just having it guammed on later and and kind of trying to to work, um, to, you know, to, to graft it on something that wasn't really designed with privacy at the core. So so that's kind of the the, the trade off. It might be a few very weird years, but but I think it's ultimately for the best for for local ecosystems especially.
1: MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.